Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A New York State Health Department board formalized with Governor Kathy Hochul announced on Wednesday this week school children will continue to be required to wear masks to help protect them against COVID-19 until at least early March. This after she ended a statewide mask mandate for most indoor public spaces. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, nearly two dozen people testified about the extension, including the state's school's superintendents. For emergency adoption, face coverings for COVID-19 prevention, and I so move. The Public Health and Health Planning Council voted for another extension of the mask mandate for school children in New York. The normally obscure policymaking board drew more than two dozen speakers to its meeting. Most testified against the extension of the mandate, as well as other regulations about vaccinations and quarantine protocols. Allie Halpin, a mother from Suffolk County, says the masks amount to child abuse and are harming the mental health of children. These kids are miserable in masks. They cannot breathe. Their development is being hindered. If you vote yes and extend the emergency order and keep our kids in mass, you can go to bed at night considering yourself child abusers. The New York State Council of School Superintendents also expressed concerns. While it does not oppose continuation of the mandate, the group's Greg Burke asked for more clarity about when the mandate will end and if it will be reinstated in the future. The school superintendents want more information on the science and data behind the decisions, saying many school communities lack a clear understanding of them. Communities are strained. Their threads are being pulled. School leaders are working to keep everybody together and keep schools functioning. Burke also asked that school boards no longer be required to vote on mask mandates to avoid further controversy at their gatherings. Some members of the Public Health Council board also asked for more details from health officials on the metrics used to make the decisions. Anne Monroe is the consumer advocate representative on the board. But are those transparent and publicly understood? I would have to say from everything we've heard from the letters and the people who've spoken that that process is not well understood whether or not you agree with it. Harvey Lawrence, who heads BMS Family Health and Wellness Centers, asked the health department to take a more proactive approach on getting the word out to the public on their rationale for the regulations. And that that type of information campaign is critically important uh, because I think in absent that there creates a void. Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett, who spoke later at the full board meeting, says a number of data points go into decision-making about the pandemic restrictions and rules. They include the number of new cases, the number of people hospitalized with the virus, including pediatric hospitalizations, and the percentage of hospital beds that are occupied. Bassett says all of those numbers are going down, but she could not say what exact metrics would trigger an end to the school mask mandate. We use all of these together. There's no uh, one rule, and there probably will never be a one rule. 
that we use for determining where we stand with the pandemic. But we are in a very good place. Governor Hochul, who ended the mask mandate for businesses on Wednesday, said she wants to be more cautious when it comes to making decisions concerning the health of children. Children still need adults to look out for their health. This is all about looking out for the health of our children. The governor and the Public Health Planning Council are not alone in their decision to keep the school mask mandate in place a little longer. The Federal Centers for Disease Control also believes it's too soon to lift them. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. There was a lot of arguing going on at the state capitol in Albany, Alan, and saw this story. Mayor Eric Adams' uh, virtual appearance before the legislature clashed with Democrats over his crime plan. Adams argued that changes to bail laws and other measures designed to make the criminal justice system more fair have overreached, allowing more dangerous criminals onto the streets. Latrice Walker, an Assembly Democrat from Brooklyn and one of the authors of the recent changes to the state's bail laws, took issue with the mayor's comments and challenged Adams to a debate about bail reform. Quote, we are seeing crime on the rise all across the country, even in states where bail reform is not a thing. Ms. Walker said, adding that the legislature is aware of the, quote, Jim Crow remnants of criminal justice in our country. Quote, from Adams, I don't think you should debate me. You should debate the 11-month-old baby's mother, referring to a child who was shot in the face last month. No, it's you who are making this a political issue, Ms. Walker said, talking over the mayor. I lost a brother at the age of 19 years old to gun violence. Whoa. Well, here we have it. Law and order versus a sort of liberal approach to the way in which we ought to be conducting ourselves. Clearly, Adams won the mayorality on this message. The Democrats who have been pushing liberal-type reforms like the bail reform bill find themselves in a bad place because people will always go for safety first. And the mayor's message is extremely popular right now. You know, here we have a black mayor of New York, a former policeman, a guy who has preached law and order in the past, but also reform of the police departments so that they are more honest and more upfront about the way they do things. And the way that I'm looking at this right now is he is popular and the more liberal argument because people would rather be safe than argue principally. Look, I get it. I know that there's no other way to look at it than we really have to be fair about the way we administer the law. And I get the liberal argument. Believe me, I do. But right now, Adams has got it all. Very interesting article on New York's, quote, political turncoats, a long, proud history of politicians switching parties. And first on the list under former Republicans who are now Democrats, Eric Adams, the mayor, former Brooklyn Borough president, has been through a political change or two over the years. They have other names here like Michael Bloomberg and Julia Salazar, Mike Spano, John Lindsay. It goes on and on, including former Democrats who are now Republicans like Vito Fasella. Herman Badillo, Olga Mendez, Joseph Robach, Teddy Roosevelt. 
you know, talk about this for a minute, the idea that party matters only insofar as when you can win. That's right, David. You've got it right on the nose. People switch parties when they think there is a political advantage and that they're going to look better or they're going to do better as a result. It really has less to do with the philosophy of being a Republican. Remember what the Republicans were like? You remember George Bush? Both of the George Bushes. And what happened is that as things change, the definition of what a Republican is changes too. For example, Donald Trump is now the face of modern Republicanism. And the Bushes and others are sort of hiding out, even though they clearly don't like what they're seeing. So, yes, it is not unusual to see people changing for the sake of winning. Well, no surprise, but it's out there now. The former president, Donald Trump, Wednesday endorsed the re-election bid of who? North Country Representative Elise Stefanik. As she seeks a fifth term this year, Congresswoman Stefanik, the chairwoman of the House GOP, quote, is doing an amazing job for New York. Elise is one of our America First Movement's great warriors. Now she'll represent many more counties, all big Trump country, including Montgomery, Rensselaer, Schoharie, Oneida, Oswego, and Ansego in the new New York 21st District. He also endorsed Claudia Tenney for re-election. Certainly no surprise. Well, look, Stefanik, who was a moderate when she began, is anything but that now. She's a Trumper, and she feels it's working for her. So we will watch what happens, because I think what's going to happen is that Trump is going to run again, and if he if he runs again, he's going to choose Stefanik as his vice presidential running mate. A woman, a young woman, perfect demographically and perfect in terms of her loyalty to his message and to who he is. So I think that's going to happen now. She is hardly reflective of New York State, that's for sure. She's in that one district where, you know, there are an awful lot of Republicans and an awful lot of Trumpers, and so she wins. But in terms of running for higher office in New York State, forget about it, Jack. That ain't going to happen. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Just over a year ago, a judge ordered election officials to certify Claudia Tenney as the winner in New York's 22nd congressional district race. The counting process and ensuing legal challenges took 94 days. The vote counting exposed systemic problems with county election boards. But as WSKG's Vaughn Golden reports, election officials say it won't happen again. Broome County's 2021 absentee ballot canvas is much quieter than the one the year before. Poll workers sit at tables behind plexiglass screens, opening absentee ballots one by one. Elections officials and the public can watch to make sure each ballot is valid and counted appropriately. Just a rip in it? Yeah. That should be fine. It's okay. Yep. But some ballots do have issues and are thrown out. Mark Smith is Broome County's Republican Election Commission. As we just received a ballot, Unfortunately, a voter uh, gave us their opinion and wrote uh, a statement on the back of the ballot. That's an identifiable mark. 
uh, were unable to count that ballot. So on the top, I wrote identifiable marks, void, and then I initialed it. But in 2020, this is where things started to go wrong. Some elections commissioners used sticky notes to indicate which ballots may have issues. But by the time those ballots were challenged in court, some of those sticky notes fell off. That made it unclear why they had been challenged or if they were counted. And the race came down to just over 100 votes, meaning a few voided or non-voided ballots really mattered. Smith says things went much smoother in 2021, and far fewer people turned in absentee ballots. Sarah Borman and Nicole Shortell are Oneida County's new elections commissioners, and they agree. Absolutely. It was Um, really a gift to have an off year to start, because it it really gave us a chance to, you know, be able to hone our skills and, you know, minor groove. Borman and Shortell's predecessors resigned after the 2020 count. The U.S. Department of Justice threatened to sue Oneida County and effectively required it to overhaul the entire Board of Elections. And Borman says that's pretty much what they did. Well, we developed an employee handbook, which is an extensive policies and procedures, written policies and procedures, which is something that was lacking here before. Borman says part of those procedures were borrowed from other counties and other commissioners, but the state itself doesn't have one set of standards for all of the boards of elections to follow. And that's a chief complaint of Susan Lerner, executive director of Common Cause New York. Right now, you just don't have enough basic standards and enough management controls to really feel that everything is under control in every county. And the the problems in CD22 really underlined that. Lerner says without a statewide baseline, it may be difficult to effectively make other statewide changes to the process. But the state is moving ahead with a few. At the end of last year, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a law allowing elections boards to begin counting absentee ballots before Election Day. The Broome and Oneida County Elections Commissioners say they're ready for this year's election. But the most important thing they need right now is funding. That funding can go into making sure it's easier to vote, the count is accurate, and it doesn't take months to figure out. In Binghamton, I'm Vaughn Golden. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli recently completed an analysis of Governor Kathy Hochul's recently released budget. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus sat down with the Comptroller. Well, I mean, the good news is the very clear uh, message is that because of the uh, higher-than-expected tax revenue, which is a a consequence of the economic recovery, as uneven as it is, but it's still been happening at a faster pace than had been first projected, the additional tax revenue that came from some of the changes in the current year budget, some of the tax increases on wealthier New Yorkers, and the big game changer of all the federal money that's come in as part of the American Rescue Plan, uh, this has really uh, elevated the level of, of the money that the state has. So for the first time in anyone's memory, uh, we're not just talking about this year's budget, but for the for the next five years, even one year beyond the financial plan, we're not projecting, and the governor's not projecting any budget gaps. 
Ian, as you recall, usually we have a state budget. We argue about how to get the budget in balance, and we acknowledge that the next year and two years, three years after that, there are going to be out-year gaps we have to deal with. This is the first budget where we don't have that. So that's very, very good news. So the risks, though, are you know, will the economy, in fact, pick up or will it start to go backwards? Inflation concerns about where is the pandemic at? Uh, you know, so some of those projections may not come to pass. We hope that they do. We know the federal money is not forever. So we have to make sure that we are mindful of the fact that a couple of years from now, we will not have all these federal resources. So in the short run, it's good news. There's a lot of money to, to spread around on important programs, but um, we have to plan for the future. And that's why that issue of the reserves that you mentioned becomes so important. What's your recommendation? Well, I, the recommendation has always been for many years for for us to do a much more aggressive job of building up our, our rainy day reserve funds, our reserves. The good news is Governor Hochul has a proposal to do that and puts money behind it. The challenge, though, is that the money that she's putting in and projecting, much of it is slated to go into what are, for lack of a better definition, unrestricted reserves, meaning that you know, we, we, we have reserves that are by statute where it's, there's a very clear uh, process by which the money is put in and limitations on when the money can be used and how it gets drawn down. Those are the kind of reserves that I would argue should be the ones where we should be putting our money. What the governor is proposing, the level of reserves is admirable, but much of what's being proposed would be in these unrestricted reserves. And by unrestricted, it really means it's discretionary money. So it's money that, that the executive can move uh, as they see fit. And one would hope that that would be money that would not be uh, squandered, uh, but you know, from my point of view, if you really want to protect the reserves to really have them be there for that rainy day, and by rainy day, I mean uh, unanticipated an emergency, a significant economic downturn, those are the reserves you should be building up. So I don't quibble so much with the numbers that the governor's proposing. It's certainly a lot healthier uh, buildup of reserves than we've had in our state for a long time. But they should not be in discretionary funds. You know, we also put out, I think you saw, our report on the dedicated highway and, and bridge trust fund. And that's another case of what was intended as a lockbox. And what we found is that the, the, there have been steps taken to circumvent the original intent. So now it's only about 17 cents of every dollar is going for the pay-as-you-go capital expenses for our, for our roads and bridges. That's not what the intent was. So you know what happens too often in New York is that programs are set up with good intention and even with some safeguards, and then and then the provisions are not withstood. So that's that's really the concern that we have, you know, for for how the reserve should be treated as well. Okay, let me follow up uh, there then to ask about this issue of oversight and accountability. Your executive um, budget analysis says that your office would lose some oversight in the executive budget and that uh, state finance law competitive bidding procedures would be eliminated for state contracts. Can you explain uh, your concern? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not all state contracts. It's, it's just another subset, particularly with regard to health care spending. And, and, Ian, this is an issue we've been talking about, for, it seems like, for a very long mm-hmm. time. Uh, and it always happens at budget time where the executive pr- proposes and the legislature, unfortunately, often goes along with circumventing the, 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 the contract review, the pre-ordered authority, the controller's office. And, and that's where you have fewer eyes 
looking at making sure money is being spent appropriately. It was an issue with the prior administration. We were able, uh, due to a memorandum of, 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 uh, of understanding, have some of the authority that was taken away on the big centralized contracts and the SUNY construction contracts, some of that, much of that authority restored. But it's like, you know, the old playbook was brought out in this budget, and now we see another proposal with regard to some of the health care spending where our uh, oversight, our review, our pre-audit authority would be put aside. And again, it just, it just makes it, um, I think, less secure for taxpayers, uh, in fact, that um, best value is going to be achieved, that there'll be fairness and even playing field. Uh, and it's all done under the notion of, well, it's more efficient to do it this way. Well, you know, we turn around contracts, you know, usually less than a week if it's an emergency contract, often within 24 hours. So I think it's a bogus argument that cutting the controller's review out really contributes to efficiency. I think what it what it adds to is the is the possibility that the taxpayer dollar will be compromised. So as we've done in the past, we're suggesting the legislature reject those proposals. Have you had a chance to make that case to the governor yourself? Uh, I, we haven't had a personal conversation about it, but this has been standard policy of our office for a long time. And, um, you know, certainly that's what we're identifying in the report we put out today. You know, I look, the challenge, I suspect, is not uh, necessarily the governor herself, but, you know, the budgets are put together by staff in the Division of Budget. It's a lot of the same folks that were were writing the same uh, the same language, budget language, in years past. So they kind of recycled some of that language and of have it applied to some a new area of, of spending. So I think it's unfortunate. As you know, the legislature has been considering uh, some very significant reforms in procurement to, to ensure that our oversight will be there. So I'm hoping in the legislative process they will, they will alter that wording in the governor's executive proposal. Uh, you haven't mentioned his name, but you just referred to the last administration. Uh, this week, Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo, gave an interview where he talked about being vindicated uh, after the attorney general's investigation into the claims against him. Last week, he um, had dinner. It was reported with New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Do you have any thoughts about a potential comeback? Uh, do you expect one? Do you think it's a good idea? Uh, you know, I really ha- you know, I have no particular insight into what uh, the former governor may be thinking, but I, if he would ask my recommendation, I would strongly urge him not to uh, uh, seek elective office anytime soon. I I think given everything that's gone down, uh, the likelihood that um, he would be successful in that regard, I think, is quite remote. Your office also uh, released an update on the Common Retirement Fund for the third quarter. How is the retirement fund doing right now? Well, despite the volatility of the markets in recent weeks, we've uh, done very well. Uh, The numbers that we put out uh, and have to do with the end of year, December 31st. That's not the end of our fiscal year, so we still have another quarter before we have the the, the, the final valuation of the fund. But for the three-month period ending December 31st, we had a, a positive return of uh, seven, uh, 4.7%. So for that quarter, uh, that's a really solid number. Keep in mind, for the entire year, our goal now is a 5.9%. So to get 4.7 just in the one quarter is really good news. We had positive returns the previous two quarters. So we'll look to see how we do between now and March 31st. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to jinx it because a lot could happen. But I think we're on track for another year where, where we will meet and exceed our, our numbers. So we're now 
uh, valued at about $279.7 billion. So our fund keeps growing. Keep in mind, at the end of the last fiscal year, we were at, at about $258 billion. So even though our payouts are increasing uh, in terms of people who are retiring and people living longer, uh, getting pension payouts over a longer period of time, our fund continues to grow. So uh, much of that has to do with the strength of the financial markets. Uh, you know, let's hope that the volatility will, will not uh, put us backward. And I always like to remind people we're not just invested in the stock market. We have a lot of money in fixed income, which is safe. You're not making a big return there right now, but it's safe. And our alternative investments have been doing pretty well also. So pension fund, good news for your listeners. And there are many that are part of the, of the New York pension system. We will continue to deliver on your retirement security. Nothing to worry about in that regard. So just lastly, uh, Mr. Sole Trustee, as you look at all of these various metrics in terms of the pension fund, also your analysis of the state budget, is your sense that, you know, as a state, as a country, we're out of the worst of what we've seen uh, during the pandemic and, and getting back to something approaching what we had before? You know, I'm optimistic. I don't know that I would go as far as your question implies, uh, certainly for the state, one of our challenges is that we're still lagging the national numbers as far as job recovery. So, our, you know, keep in mind, New York, particularly downstate New York, was hit so hard, so fast by COVID-19 when it first impacted us. Uh, no surprise that it's taking longer for us to get the kind of solid economic footing that we were on uh, pre-pandemic. So we're headed in the right direction. You know, sales tax collections are way up. That's a good sign of economic activity and consumer confidence. But, uh, you know, the last numbers I saw, I think the federal job recovery was like at 87 percent. The state was only, you know, like 63, 64 percent. So uh, we're not where we need to be. We're, we're, we're heading in the right direction, but it is, it is a slower growth than we're seeing nationally. So we still have to keep a close eye on the trends, be smart about how we're spending money, certainly at the state level, appreciate the federal money that's really helped not only the state, but our local government so much. And we have to continue to support our, our, our local businesses and our nonprofits, because many of them are still very challenged by, uh, by this uh, continued pandemic environment. I hope we're pivoting to the recovery uh, environment, uh, the, uh, the recovery phase of this. But, um, you know, I, 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 let me just leave it that I'm, I'm very cautiously optimistic with the numbers that I'm seeing, but we're not out of the woods yet. That's the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus with New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2206. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.